live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City. This is the Jeff Wagner Show. Have we gotten to this point where people wake up every morning looking for something to be offended about? I live in this place called the real world, and I understand what is going to happen. Her story is, I was trying to scare him away. At the same time, she shot him point blank in the face. Okay, that's not exactly a warning shot. The Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line is open now. Give Jeff a call at 855-616-1620. Coming up next, Squirrel. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. Let me tell you about something that happened last night. It is being reported, sort of. But the details of what really happened aren't public yet. Well, we're going to change that right about now. Now, but by, to just get started on this, the, the governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, and a number of his cronies in the legislature, together with community organizers and activists, have decided we need to release people from the Wisconsin state prisons. Problem is, we've got too many people in prison. Well, my argument has been, you got to work to get yourself put in prison. And typically, if, if we care anything about public safety, the last thing we need to do is be releasing people from prison. Because the only way you reduce the prison population by 50% is what their goal is. Number one, you, you got to essentially open the jailhouse doors and let people out. And secondly, you have to not put people in. And the people that you're going to be letting out are people who belong in jail. And the people that you're not going to be putting in in the first place are people that belong in jail. As part and parcel of this, one of the things, and Governor Evers is making this a showpiece moving forward, the idea that we need to make it harder to send people who are on supervision, probation or parole, we need to make it harder to send them to prison or back to prison, all of which... I think is absolutely insane, just absolutely insane, especially if we go come with from the premise that most of the people that are in prison, most of the people behind bars deserve to be behind bars because they're either career criminals who after having chance after chance after chance have continued to offend or they're people who've done stuff that's just so bad that that you have to you have to ship them off. Which brings me to a story last night, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet, but I predict it will. A little bit before 10 o'clock. Well, here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports it. One person was injured Wednesday night when a car traveling at a high rate of speed on a city street crashed into a fire truck. Just before 10, a car with its lights off and traveling between 70 and 80 miles an hour crashed into a Milwaukee Fire Department apparatus near the intersection of 27th Street and North Avenue. The car was traveling north on 27th Street when it T-boned the fire truck, which was traveling west on North Avenue, with its emergency lights and siren on. The fire truck was responding to a call. I'll get to that in a second. The driver of the car was taken to the hospital with a possible broken leg. No one from the fire department was injured the crash is under investigation okay so cars driving quickly and hits the fire truck here's what really happened and i go to some of my sources on this 954 last night a milwaukee police department squad car was responding to an assignment guy in a car sees the squad car coming down the street and feels that they're coming to get him. 
More on that in just a minute. And takes off. So this is all started by somebody fleeing from cops. He sees a squad car in the area and he takes off and starts to flee. In the process of fleeing from the police, and by the way, they weren't, this wasn't a high speed chase or anything. This is a bad guy running from the police because he thinks they might be coming to get him. More on that in a second. In the process, the driver T-boned Milwaukee Fire Department engine number 30, one of the busiest engines in the city at 2700 block of Northwest, of West North Avenue. The firefighters, one lieutenant, one heavy equipment operator, and two firefighters were, uh, they report thankfully no injuries. All right, here is the dazzling detail. The suspect, I have his name, I'm going to make the decision not to name him, but I've got his name and date of birth, has a lengthy record. I ran the guy on CCAP. To say it would be a lengthy record would be like saying, I sort of like to play golf. I really like to play golf, and this guy has a really lengthy record. On top of that, he is currently on federal supervision. In other words, convicted of an offense, a crime in federal court on federal paper. And this is in addition to a lengthy, a lengthy state record. At the scene of the accident, so keep in mind you have this guy fleeing from the police because he's afraid they're coming to get him and then he hits this fire truck that is responding to an accident. At the scene... A gun and drugs were recovered. A gun and drugs were recovered. So here you have a guy who is not legally allowed to possess a firearm on all sorts of types of supervision, lengthy criminal record, running from the cops, and he sideswipes, T-bones, a fire truck that is responding to a call. A gun and drugs were recovered. All right, so obviously this idea of we're going to let him out on supervision, and, and that's going to be enough to keep the public safe. G- guess what? It wasn't because he's on supervision. He's doing something he's not supposed to do. He's got a gun. He's got drugs. Hadn't learned a damn thing from being through the criminal justice system. He runs from the cops. person sending me a note says, only, the angel, only by the angels watching over the firefighters do we not have injured or worse firefighters this morning. You ask it hundreds of times on your show, why was this guy out on the street? To which... Again, I I say I have no answer other than the fact that we bend over backwards not to hold repeat criminals accountable because we think they're going to magically learn their lesson. We think that when, gee, we catch people for committing offenses after offenses after offenses, all we're going to have to do is just threaten them with going to prison. And that's going to be enough to change their behavior. And we know time after time after time, it's not. You know, the vast majority of crime in the city of Milwaukee, in the state of Wisconsin and nationwide, it's committed by a very, very small percentage of people. It's the same people over and over and over again who continue to commit crimes, who refuse to learn their lesson, who get break after break after break on federal paper, on state paper, on probation, on double secret probation, and they don't give a rat's rump 
about following the terms of the probation. They don't give a rat's rump about being law-abiding citizens. And their initial reaction is, here, I'm going to take off, and I don't care if I hit a fire truck. I don't care if I hit kids in the intersection. All I'm thinking about is myself and my drugs and my guns and all these things. So whenever you hear some of these politicians or these progressively-minded community organizers who say, we've got to clean out the jails. We're just, we're sending too many people to prison. And you know, I wish, I wish we didn't have criminals. I wish it wasn't necessary to have 20 some thousand people in the Wisconsin state prison system that the rest of us are paying for. But the option of not sending them to prison is to allow them to wreak havoc on all the rest of us. And I don't want to make that call. It is a miracle. It's a miracle that these various uh, Milwaukee Fire Department employees were not seriously injured when the car at a high rate of speed crashed into the side of their fire truck last night at 9 o'clock. Predictably, though, the reason it happened was the car was being driven by somebody who should not have been on the street in the first place, who had a gun, who had drugs, who was out there, again, wreaking havoc on the community. He should have been behind bars, and he wasn't. So whenever you see, oh, we've got to let people go, we don't want to send as many people to prison, we don't want to revoke people's probation, well, okay, all right, that, that's good. We're not going to revoke the guy's probation, and now what's going to happen? We could have had four dead firefighters. Unbelievable. When we come back, well... I want to talk to you about something that's going to be happening over the course of the next 10 months. Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So, Drew, producing the show today and always. People might think I ask these, you these questions beforehand. I don't. It's always a surprise. All right. The, the first caucuses, political caucuses of the year, are in Iowa. That's coming up, what, in like two weeks or so. The candidates have been campaigning in Iowa. Would you like to guess how much has been spent on political advertising in Iowa over the course of, let's say, the last 13 months or so? Did I just take a guess? Uh, oh, ballpark. Okay, uh, let's say $200 million. $200 million in Iowa. No, that, 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 that's high. No, that, that's high, not $200 million. Okay, but let me just back up here. Iowa... Iowa is not a heavily populated state. I mean, it, it's not California. It's not Texas. It's not New York. It's not Florida, you know, where you have multiple television markets. TV time to buy in Iowa is is cheap comparatively, at least it would be outside of the political season. It's not like if you want to advertise in California, for example, you got to buy time on TV stations in San Diego and Los Angeles and Sacramento and San Francisco and all these places in between. You want to buy TV time in Florida, you got to buy in Miami and Orlando and, you know, all, all along the Gulf Coast and up in Jacksonville and all these different places. You got to do that. Iowa, it's, it's not a giant population center. The answer to my question is they estimate that by the time all is said and done, candidates will have spent just on TV advertising somewhere north of 63 million. That's M as in million dollars running 
commercials. This is presidential candidates in Iowa over the course of the last 13 months. $63 million. And that's roughly the same as, that's roughly the same as before. And keep in mind, the vast majority of that spending is going to be on the Democrat side. President Trump has done some advertising, but, but nothing big. But it's all the other Democrats. It's the Democrats who are trying to, to break through. They're going to be spending $63 million. I will tell you this, that there are TV and radio stations all across this country who are looking at 2020. And depending on where you are, they are counting on substantial political advertising buys. It happens every four years, happens every two years. Now, in some year, if you're in some states, it's not as as big a deal. The candidates aren't going to be, the presidential candidates, for example, aren't going to be spending a lot of money in Utah because President Trump is going to win Utah. It is a heavily Republican state. So you're not going to be seeing a lot of of spending on the presidential campaigns. Uh, You're probably not going to be seeing a lot of heavy spending um, on the presidential level in California because California is going to overwhelmingly go for whoever the Democrat nominee is. So it's you're, you're, you're going to have maybe a little bit of spending, but but not not that much in places like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin and a handful Ohio and a handful of other so-called swing states. You're, you're not going to be able to turn on the TV or turn on the radio and not hear some ad. Maybe it's going to be an ad by the candidates. Maybe it's going to be an ad by some special interest group supporting a cause or a candidate. But the airwaves, both radio and television, are going to be inundated with ads. And the candidates are going to spend millions of dollars to do it, just like they're spending $63 million. I don't know how you could spend $63 million in Iowa, and yet that's what they are doing. Now, here's what I want to discuss with you. Is it going to make any difference? I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, and they said, you know, I've never, I I, I know who I'm going to vote for, and I see the different ads, and I've never decided, gee, I'm going to vote for this candidate because I saw that ad. I'm going to vote against this other candidate because I saw that ad. It, it, they were saying, you know, th- this this money that is being spent on the advertising, and I understand I, I work for a radio station. You know, we, we are going to be getting political advertising, and that's very, very welcome to the bottom line. But what I want to discuss with you is the ad spending and all the ads that are out there, does it work? Is it necessary is it overkill? Does it ever change your mind? And is there too much of it? Do we need to have $63 million spent in Iowa in order to, I don't know, help the voters decide who it is that they want to choose at a caucus? Have you ever really made up your mind as to who you're going to buy, who you're going to support because of an ad? Our number. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Do we need all the ads? And by saying need all the ads, I'm asking, do you think that they make a difference at the end of the day? 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ.
So very glad to have you with us. Okay, $63 million or thereabouts is going to be dumped into Iowa just on television spending alone, not even talking about radio and other social media sort of stuff. All the candidates do it because they think that that's the way that they are going to get votes. And you're going to see that play out, like I say, over the course of the next 10 months or so around here. You are undoubtedly just going to be inundated because every time you turn on the TV over the next few months, there's going to be an ad for some Democrat candidate leading up to the primary in April. And then after that, I tell you, since Wisconsin is a battleground state, you're going to be seeing a ton of political ads on the Republican side, on the Democrat side, it's um, it's going to get, I think, probably to a point, and this happens every contested election, where it's almost tough for regular advertisers to get space because the political candidates are, are grabbing it all up. So the fundamental question is, does it work? Does it make any difference? And And my argument has been, candidates have to do it. But I think for the vast majority of candidates, I don't think it sways opinion. I mean, let's take the presidential election. And I think the truth of the matter is, is people are dug in. Um, I I can't imagine if you are a Donald Trump supporter, I can't imagine that you're going to see an ad run by Bernie Sanders, for example, and all of a sudden you say, I'm seeing the light. I'm I'm feeling the burn. I've watched this advertisement and now I'm going to go switch and I'm going to vote for Bernie over Donald Trump. I don't see it happening. Similarly, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter, you're part of that Bernie Sanders revolution. You know, you, you see, a, even if it's the best produced Trump ad in the world, are, are you going to watch that? Are you going to say, oh, gee, now I want to go out. I, I've, I've seen the light. I'm going to vote for President Trump. You know, I, I think by and large. That the, these ads don't move the needle, especially in a race where the candidates are very, very well known. Now, maybe if it's a situation where you have an unknown who's running against a, an incumbent or something like that, you got to run some of these ads to at least get you some name recognition and start that that breakthrough, so people at least become aware of who you are. But once. You're talking about a high-profile race like the president. It's hard for me to see how this changes. Does that mean you don't run ads? No, it doesn't mean you don't run ads, because here's the real value, in my mind, of the ads. The ads, in many cases, they're not done for the undecideds. What they're really done is for the base of support. I mean, if you're a Bernie Sanders supporter and, and you, you know, you're listening to the radio or you're watching TV and you don't see anything from your candidate and all you see is attack ads from the other side or whatever, you're going where you, you get, you start to get depressed. You get angry. Where's my guy? Why isn't he, why isn't he responding? Does the fact that he's not responding mean they think the election's over? No, no. When you run ads, I think they're directed as much towards the base as anyone else. Because because, you know, you, you get fired up. Hey, I'm a supporter of the president. I, I mean, I yeah, there's the Trump ad. Yeah, they're responding. They're fighting fire with fire. They're not taking this lying down when the other side's running all these different campaigns. Political advertising, a lot of times, I don't believe it's necessarily designed to move undecideds, especially in races where the lines are drawn as clearly as this. What they're trying to do is motivate their supporters, motivate their base, show that there's a campaign, show the campaign has a pulse, and encourage people to get out and vote. So if you say, oh, they're, they're not going to change opinions, yeah, they might not change opinions, but the ads aren't necessarily intended to do that. They're intended to get you even more firmly entrenched. And if you're a Trump guy or a Bernie guy or an Elizabeth Warren guy or a Joe Biden guy or whatever, get you to go out and vote for them. 
This is Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Yeah, this is a pretty big oops. Um, they, they talk about a lot about the, the fog of war. The fog of war means, in, in general, that like imagine a battlefield and you've got confusion all over, and you've got smoke, and you got people fighting, and you got troops here, and you got troops here, and it's difficult from any particular position to be able to, through the fog of war, really see big picture, you know, what's going on. That's, you know, and so you end up, at least under the theory, you end up making making bad choices because you, you don't necessarily see the big picture. And you have, all right, you, you might see what's going on in a third of the battlefield and the other two thirds are obscured. And, you know, based on that third of the battlefield that you see, through the fog of war, you, you make decisions when it turns out things really aren't, you know, aren't right because you're not seeing the, the whole picture. And, and that that whole thing that happens a lot when you get breaking news stories. And it's one of the interesting issues because you, you've got right now a very, very competitive media environment. The TV reporters want to be first. They want to be able to say, we got on the air first. We are the ones that brought you the story of X, Y, and Z, and we did it first. And radio reporters are like that, and the newspapers are the same thing. So, I mean, I don't mean to single out TV reporters. That's the, that's the media now. You want to get on the air with it first. You want to be the first one that has the breaking news story. Well, I learned a long, long time ago when I started doing this on the radio that if you were to ask me, okay, what what are some of the segments that you did that you perhaps have the biggest regret over? And and I'd, I'd probably have to go back a long time, but I, it would be ones where maybe, you know, it was just a breaking news story and and something came out a couple hours after the breaking news story, which kind of changed the angle on it. And so that's why I've, I've always, I, I've learned all right, you you want to you want to talk about something while it's current, but you also want to wait till you know what probably really happened because one development, one fact can can change things. In today's media environment, that's not the case. You have a lot of reporters, they want to be the first, and their producers want to be the first, and their networks want to be the first. And so you run with stuff based on, well, information that tends, in some cases, not to be reliable, and in other cases, tends to be just flat-out wrong. And then there needs to be accountability, especially in the age of President Trump, who labels you know all these reports as being fake news. This is fake news, that's fake news. There's more attention than ever, and there's more sensitivity than ever, than ever and I think some of these newsrooms, not to be completely and totally wrong, because then you kind of play into, fairly or not, the, the whole fake news narrative. Which brings me to um, Matt Gutman, who is a, a big-time reporter for ABC News, frequent contributor to – he's been with ABC News for about 12 years. Um, he's a correspondent based out of Los Angeles. Frequently, you'll see him on ABC World News Tonight. Um, frequently, you'll see him on 2020. This guy's a, a big deal, and, he, and he's been an ABC News correspondent for the last 12 years. Well, you won't be hearing him, at least in the immediate future, because he has been suspended – by ABC News. Now, they're not saying how long the suspension is, but what did he do? Well, all right, Sunday, you had the breaking news story involving the, the Kobe Bryant helicopter crash. Um, he was one of the first people 
to go live on TV to report it. He went on television with the breaking news. And in the course of his reporting on the breaking news, he reported that Kobe Bryant had been killed in the car and the helicopter crash. He also went on to report that all four of Kobe Bryant's daughters were on board the helicopter that, that crashed. He said, you know, all four. He said Bryant's daughters, Natalia, 17, Bianca, 13, and Capri, seven months were believed to have been involved in the deadly accident. You know, we all grew up with Kobe and the fact that four of his children are believed to be on board that helicopter with him, all daughters, one of them a newborn, is simply devastating. Well, as we all know, this was a huge tragedy, but Kobe Bryant did not have all his daughters with him. And to go on national news and report that it's believed that they all were is a pretty darn big oops. And to its credit, um, you know, ABC News made Gutman apologize for this. He said, the fact that well, this is what I reported, it's incorrect. I apologize to Kobe's families, friends, and our viewers. ABC said, look, reporting the facts accurately is the cornerstone of our journalism. As Matt Gutman's acknowledged on Sunday, the initial reporting was not accurate and failed to meet our editorial standards. And and to me, this issue is beyond any one given reporter. But it is it is an object lesson that's out there that it is important to be quick. I understand that is the competitive nature of the news business. You always want to be first. But at the same time, you've also got to be right. And I would argue before you go on national television and report that somebody has died and that it is believed that his children were all with him, you better be damn sure that that information is correct or else you cause a lot of pain to an otherwise grieving family, to friends of the family, and you mislead the viewers in a big way. So, you know, it's important to be quick, but it's more important, I would argue, to be right. Um, ABC News and their reporter, Matt Gutman, was not right on Sunday, and Gutman's paying the price. And, and yeah, he, he's the front guy for this, but you do have to wonder, you know, was there a producer that was involved in this? You know, how far does this go? And, and yeah, you suspend Gutman, but maybe you should look at, at the procedures that you use to let this information get on the air in the first place. All right, when we come back, I can't drive 55, but I'd sure like to have been able to retire when I hit that age. Stick around. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Again, all the conversation about the tragic helicopter crash involving Kobe Bryant, one of the things that was always in the back of my mind, and actually there's a story that answers it, is how much does it cost to take a, to, I mean, he would regularly use a helicopter to commute from where he lived in, in the suburbs of Los Angeles to downtown Los Angeles. And it, it was a regular sort of thing. And, and by using a helicopter, you could take a, a drive. And driving around L.A. with the congestion and stuff is, is just a nightmare to get anywhere. And even for relatively short trips, it, it could take forever. So you could take a drive, which would take an hour to an hour and a half, you could get in a helicopter, and you could do it in twelve or thirteen minutes, and and so um, that's that's how he he got around a, a, a lot, um, and of course ultimately, you know, we we know what happened on Sunday. I was kind of curious about how much it costs to do this. Uh, apparently, 
to rent the whole helicopter, it's about $5,000 an hour. And you have to use it for two hours. And there's a two-hour minimum. So even if the flight only takes 15 minutes, you you got you got to rent it for, for like two hours. So it's about a $10,000 excursion to save yourself an hour and i guess if you if i mean look if i don't ever tell people or hardly ever tell people how to spend their money if you got the money i i get it time is valuable and stuff um it, there's also these services that are out there if like somebody else has chartered the helicopter and you want to just you want to get a seat on it um it's about they, they say three to four hundred dollars just for the seat on the helicopter so you you want to do the charter five grand for an hour probably a two-hour minimum um, if you just want a seat and you know somebody that's already chartered it you could probably get that for you know a few hundred bucks but um, I don't know about you Gru I don't plan on having to worry about that I'd, have you ever been on a private helicopter you ever taken a helicopter anywhere no, I've no. never been on a private plane, helicopter, no, private, none of that. I, I've never, I've, I've never been on a private helicopter. I, matter of fact, I've never been on a helicopter. I've, I've, i not, I've never taken a helicopter ride. I just, um, eh, I, I've been on private planes. And private planes, if you have friends that have them, that, that's definitely the, the way to go. But, um, never been on a helicopter before. And I don't have any desire to be on a helicopter either. Yeah, I was gonna say they have like you know tourist kind of things where you can do yeah, tours go up to Grand and Canyon like and stuff. Yeah, they do it in Vegas. Yeah. You can get on there and they'll take you up to the Grand Canyon. I've, I've never, I've never done that, and it's just never, never had this overwhelming desire to do it. All right, here's the deal. Right now in Wisconsin, if you are in the Wisconsin retirement system, let's say you are, you're a teacher, and I. The other people in the Wisconsin retirement system, I, I use teachers, not to pick on teachers, just to use them as an example. Um, the retirement age right now is 55. You can retire with full benefits at the age of 55. There is legislation being introduced in the state capitol which would increase the retirement age from 55 to 59 and a half. Now, the specific legislation would only apply to employees who are over the age of would who are under the age of forty. So, if you were in your forties or your fifties, the argument would be, "Hey, I, I've I've already planned that you know my exit strategy was going to be at fifty-five. They wouldn't take that away. But for people who were at least fifteen years away from you know hitting that magic number, you would have to work until fifty-nine and a half to qualify for full retirement. Now, there's other aspects of this bill as well, but that's what I. I want to talk about the argument is first of all people live longer nowadays and it's one thing maybe 20 30 40 50 years ago your life expectancy is one thing now people are living longer people are staying healthy longer people are working longer and the argument is we can we can save a bunch of money we can extend the whole pension system by making this reasonable thing and we can bring the public employee pension system more in line with the private employees pension system by saying you know 59 and a half instead of 55 all right our number 855-616-1620 that is the acunate mortgage talk and text line this um, law enforcement and uh, firefighters would be still be exempt by this from this they'd still be able to retire with full benefits at 55 the argument i think being that because of that nature of the job and the physical nature of the job it's you know they still let them retire at 55 but for everybody else 
it would be 59 and a half. 855-616-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this a reasonable idea? And, and, and my answer, feel free to disagree, but my answer would be, would, would be yes. I don't, I mean, you, you know, if you look at figuring out how we are going to, as the population ages, as we live longer, as we're on Social Security longer, as we're on pension payments longer, I mean, one of the ways to prolong that is to say, hey, you're going to have to work a little longer. I'm not talking about making people work till they're 70 years old or 75 years old before they can retire. But is it unreasonable to say 59 and a half before you can retire with full benefits? And my answer would be no. I think there's probably a lot of people who've worked at jobs all their life who would have jumped at the ability to be able to retire at 59 and a half, but they've got to work till 62 or 65. 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this unreasonable? Is it unfair? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. This is Jeff Wagner. And this is Jeff Wagner. The idea that's being introduced and starting to have hearings in Madison is taking employees under the age of 40. So if you're closer to retirement age, it doesn't apply to you. But if you're a public employee in the Wisconsin retirement system, um, you'd have to wait till 59 and a half to retire with full benefits as opposed to where it currently stands at 55. I don't I don't have an issue with that. 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. The truth of the matter is people are living longer. Um, you look at what they're doing with Social Security now. I mean, th- this age for full retirement for Social Security has been gradually creeping up. You know, it's for some people, it's 65. For other people, it's 66. It's 67. They're, they're starting to move that needle. And by the way, nobody is saying that if you're... 54 or 55 or 56 or 57, you you can't retire. It's just that you have to be 59 and a half in order to start collecting benefits. I think for a lot of people in the private sector who might, I'll I'll give you an example. I mean, I'm I'm entitled to a couple small pensions from places that I worked or through my late wife, um, but but as general, they, they kick in at the age of 65. You know, you, you can't collect them before that. And I guess saying to public employees, and this isn't a hating on public employees, it's just simply saying, hey, for, for people, you know, if you've got more than 15 years to go to retirement, you're going to have to extend your plans a little bit. And you're going to have to wait till 59 and a half before you can collect, you know, full benefits. All right, let's go to a couple texts. Jeff, I, I think it's a reasonable idea. I would say, though, instead of picking winners and losing, losers with the change, um, having to decide why at 41, maybe you just do it to uh, somebody who's a new hire. Well, maybe, but I mean, at some point in time, as long as you give people enough notice, I, I don't have an issue with that. And if you're told at the age of 35 that, hey, you're not going to be able to retire at 55 with full benefits, you're going to have to go to 59 and a half. I don't think that that's um, I don't think that that's a problem, etc. With that, all right, uh, Jeff. I worked in a school district for 39 years. Retired at 59 and a half. Yes, this is the right thing to do. Health insurance is a killer, and that extra four and a half years makes a huge difference. Well, you know there. There you've got the issue. Jeff, I politely disagree. Well, that's nice that you're disagreeing politely. I believe four and a half years is too big a jump at once. Make it 56, then two years, make it 57. Um, It lessens the blow for current employees who started under that system. Okay, well, the the 
I guess let me be clear here. The proposal right now wouldn't apply to anybody who was over the age of 40. So I guess I I don't see any problem, given the fact that it's only going to apply to people who are under the age of 40, who are somewhere between 15 and 19 and a half years away from full retirement. I don't see why you would need to gradually phase this in. Anybody under the age of 40 who's within 15 years of retirement, they're still going to be able to retire at the age of 55. The rationale, again, being they've maybe they've arguably planned their retirement. Now, I don't know if people really do at the age of 42 sit down and say, okay, I'm planning. This is what I'm going to do you know, on my anniversary date when I hit 55 so I can retire. I wasn't like that. I mean, I still don't know when I'm planning to retire or anything like that. I, You know, you have these vague ideas that you start to think about as you get a little bit older. But I, I don't know that there's too many people who, under the age of 40, have already made those plans. All right, our number, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I just think this is one of these – I think this is a common-sense solution to what is – going to be a bigger and bigger problem. All right, let's take a quick break. Back with more in just a minute. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So Eric Bilstadt, do you know who Bill Vinkovich is and why his name is going to be in the news over the course of the next week? I, oh, how do I know that name? I guess I'll have to say no. I recognize that name, but I don't know why. All right. Remember last year, NFL playoffs, you had what everybody agreed was one of the worst calls ah, ever, yes. the the non-pass interference call in yep, the game yep. between the Saints, the, the and, Saints the and the Rams? Rams yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Bill Vinkovich, he was the head referee. It was his crew that was involved in in that decision mm-hmm. you know so he was the guy that at the end of the day was responsible for that that call right. that led to the rule changes and all, all these different things and now you could use like replay and stuff so arguably arguably the most controversial call in a long time in the NFL playoffs that, that I think everybody understands they got wrong bill vinkovich never acknowledged it was the wrong call but but that's bill vinkovich Want to guess who the head referee at the Super Bowl oh, is going to be? Is it Bill? It's Bill Vinkovich. Oh, yep. I love it. Yes, it is one. At the story, USA Today has it. It's one of the most astonishing pregame stories of the Super Bowl. His crew, who was responsible for what is widely considered to be the worst blown call <laughs> in NFL playoff history, will referee the game wow. on Sunday between the Chiefs and the 49ers. Was it really his fault, though? Well, he was the front guy for it, and it. I, well, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, he he could have thrown a flag. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, sure. I mean, he, that's when they talk about it. You walk up and say, right, hey, "No, there's, this yeah, is yeah. really." I mean, he was the boss. It was yeah, his right, crew. Right. No, I. You know, but but you know, fair or unfair, it, it is amazing that you know they say there's no second act in American politics. Well, there sure as heck is an NFL refereeing <laughs> that it just that a year after having. Arguably the worst call ever. You're refereeing the Super Bowl. How about that? It it is. So that's if if you see if you see the guy on Sunday and you go, boy, that guy looks familiar. How do where I know that name, Bill Vinkovich? Well, it's because you heard a lot of him last year after they made the bad call that ended up rogering the Los Angeles Rams or whatever. So I'm just I'm just or the Saints or the Saints. Yeah, that on that one, the Saints who didn't get in there. Okay. 
I, I want to revisit this whole issue involving Summerfest because there is a new development. And I, I will tell you that the city of Milwaukee, if you look at the Milwaukee Common Council, there's some good aldermen, there's some bad aldermen, and then there's Bob Bauman. Bob Bauman is the guy, he's been there forever. He represents the the city proper. And so he, you know, people say that they think that Donald Trump acts like a king. Bob Bauman acts like a king. You know, if you want to get stuff done in his part of town, you better curry favor with Bob Bauman. All right, so he's decided to weigh into the issue with Summerfest. Let's review the bidding here for a minute. Summerfest signed a long-term lease with the city of Milwaukee, giving Milwaukee World Festival, I'm going to abbreviate that as Summerfest, giving them the rights to the Summerfest grounds, right? The lease that was negotiated provided Summerfest, it's a, it increases every year as to how much rent they want to pay, but it's a contract that was signed years and years ago. The contract runs until 2030. So there's another... 10, 11 years, however you do inclusive counting, left on on the contract. Right now, I think for next year, the contract calls for a payment of like 1.5-ish million dollars, ballpark. But that, that's in the contract. On top of that, in 2009, they negotiated a supplemental payment that Summerfest has to make to the city of Milwaukee. And that, that supplemental payment helps defray the costs of police and security and things like that. All in, all done. And it goes up every year. The, the rent goes up every year. The, the supplemental payment goes up every year. All in, all done. Summerfest this year, I think, will pay in the area of $1.8 million to the city for rent. Not an insubstantial amount. Tom Barrett... And the city of Milwaukee wants more money. Even though there is a contract and an agreement that spells out how much money they should spend, they say, well, we, we want more. And they say, well, here's the deal. You know, over the years, the cost of our providing police protection to Summerfest has gone up. And, and it, it costs us about $800,000. And Summerfest, as part of the supplemental, kicks in about one hundred and forty, hundred and fifty thousand. But that still leaves us short. So we don't care. This is the city of Milwaukee's position. We don't care what the contract says. We don't care what the agreement says. We want you to give us like six hundred and fifty thousand dollars more. We want more money, which I, I find to be an interesting position. I mean, one of those deals where let's say you sign a lease with your landlord. And the lease says that you're going to pay $500 a month for, for rent. And you've got a year lease. And the landlord comes in and says, you know, um, my, my costs have gone up. It's costing me a little bit more for electricity. And I, I've got these other expenses, et cetera. So I'll tell you what. I know you've got 10 months left on that lease. I want you to pay me $750, not 500 well, what are you going to tell your landlord? You're going to say, well, that's nice, and I'm sorry that your costs have gone up, but I've got a contract. And for at least the next 10 months, I'm going to pay you what I agreed to pay you. And at the end of the lease, all right, then we can renegotiate. But, see, Milwaukee doesn't think that those rules should apply to them. They think, well, you know, we, we, we want our costs have gone up, so we want Summerfest to pay more, to which I think only – 
Only the city of Milwaukee can take an attitude like that. Well, into this wades Bob Bauman. So Bob Bauman is upset that the city isn't getting as much money as he thinks that they should get. And he's upset that Summerfest, out of the goodness of its heart, doesn't decide just automatically to roll over and give Tom Barrett and the city of Milwaukee more money. So they've got a contract. So they're stuck with that. So here is what Bauman is proposing. He wants to hold Summerfest hostage. All right. In order to, in the city of Milwaukee, um, if you want to close streets for like road close, let's say you want to have a block party, you need to get a permit. They call it a special event permit. And you need to apply to the city and you need to ask them, say, oh, I want to close, I want to have a block party. So I want to block off my street. I want to block off my block so we can all go out and hang out in the street. You got to put in a request. You have to have a permit for that. All right. Similarly, around Summerfest, you know, as part of the festival, there are roads in the immediate area that they close mostly for pedestrian safety. You know, they close that whole area that runs down, those roads that run down in front of Summerfest. Those things are closed off. Access is limited. They close streets in the immediate area around Summerfest. So here's what Bauman is saying. Tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to, and I'm paraphrasing now, hold this process hostage. Summerfest needs a special event permit for for the roads to close in the immediate area so people can get in and get out safely and all that. Well, I'm not going to issue and his it's his it's his district where all this goes on. So he's saying I'm not going to, you know, give this ordinance. I, I'm going to object to them getting this permit to allow them to operate. And the objection is until they decide they want to give me money. And so or give the city money. And so now what's happening is Summerfest has to appeal to the the overall committee because you've got this alderman that is objecting. In other words, trying to hold this festival hostage to make them pay money that they are not contractually obligated to pay, but he wants them to pay it anyways. And unfortunately, he's got one or two other aldermen, at least so far, including some who should know better, like Mark Borkowski, who are on board with this plan. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think it is nothing short of appalling that you can have some of these goofs on the Milwaukee Common Council who are deciding that the contract that we have with Summerfest shouldn't apply and that we are going to try to do all these other things on the side. We have no decent basis, no legitimate basis for denying them a permit to allow them to close the roads in the immediate area, like they've done every year since Summerfest has been in existence. All right, this is something that's done for the good of the festival. It's done for public safety. It's just, it's not an issue. It's not a controversial thing. Everybody understands it should be done. But they're doing this solely in an effort to try to extort money from Summerfest that Summerfest does not otherwise own. 
If you tried to do it in different contexts, my guess is you'd have in a different, slightly different context, you'd have grand juries being impaneled. I mean, you know, it, but but this is what is going on in Milwaukee now. Part of me says Summerfest should cl- should simply um, call their bluff and say, okay, fine. You know, you 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 don't want to give us the festival permits to close the streets. We're going to go ahead and do this anyways. Let's see what ends up happening. Our number eight five five six one six one six twenty. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I. I take no position on whether Summerfest should be paying more rent or not. I do believe that they've got a deal with the city, and the city should honor that deal and not try to come up with all these convoluted things to try to stick it to Summerfest in ways that they're not otherwise entitled to do. And if you don't have a legitimate objection to issuing this permit to allow the roads to close, and nobody does, the justification of I want more money from them should not apply. Let's start with Jim in Hales Corners. Hi, Jim. Hey, Jeff. Uh, You know, I love it when you say that uh, what's absolutely true, and that is that uh, Bob Bauman never met a bad idea that he didn't like. <laughs> right, yeah. Yes, there's, right. Bob Bauman is one of those guys that if you're trying to figure out where you should be on an issue and you can't decide, find out where he is, go the other way, and you will almost always be right. Absolutely. And, you know, some of us have been good stewards of the money. They spend it on facilities. They don't spend it willy-nilly like, oh, let's see, that $9 million grant to a, a hotel in the middle of Right, that, 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 that everybody understands is just going to be money that you are peeing down a a, a that peeing down the sewer. You're never going to get that money back. Yep. Yeah, yeah. This is this is uh, the uh, politicians trying to kill the goose that laid the golden egg. Well, I'm glad you said that, Jim, because that, I mean, I try to play this out to its logical extent. All right, so l- let's say that you don't issue the, these permits. You decide, okay, we're not going to issue the special event permit. We're going to make it difficult or impossible for people to safely get into Summerfest. What what do you accomplish by, by doing that? You're, you're going to hurt the vendors. You're going to hurt Summerfest. You're going to um, hurt the community by making it harder for people to get to this wonderful civic treasure. I mean, talk about cutting off your nose to spite your face. My goodness. Summerfest is Milwaukee, and Milwaukee is Summerfest, period. Yes, exactly. Thanks for the call. And again, I, you can make an argument, and I, I don't even want to go down that route, that Summerfest should be paying more rent. You could also make a very strong argument that given what Summerfest does for the community and the area and the region, that, that they pay too much rent. You can make that argument as well. But I don't even want to talk about the, the merits of, of the rent one way or the other. They have a deal. They have a contract. They have a lease. It is a commitment that was presumably made by people in good faith on both sides. And the idea that some of these petty little tyrants with a little bit of power on the city, elected officials, would decide that they're going to try to figure out ways to extort slash coerce people to do more than they are contractually obligated to do is appalled. Appalling. Jeff, I think this is despicable. It sounds like extortion to me. Well, it's, it is it is extortion. I mean, 
legal extortion, but extortion. For your information, I met my wife at Summerfest in 1997. Yeah, now, right, is that, that okay, so let, let's say Bob Bauman gets its way, his way. Let's say Summerfest decides, no, we've got a contract. A contract is a contract. A deal is a deal. We're not shelling out another half a million dollars. We want our, our permits, and we've had them every year, and there's no valid reason to do it. Now, aside from suing the pants off the city, which is the first thing that I would suggest they do, number two is, all right, so he gets his way. He hurts Summerfest. He makes it more difficult for them to operate. People maybe get hurt going in and out of Summerfest. Every one of those situations is on Bob Bauman and other members of the Common Council for their shameful behavior. Um, wow. Mr. Bauman is really dumb, <laughs> if you want to use a simple word. I forgot how much Summerfest actually brings to the city of Milwaukee impact revenue, and he wants to throw that all in the toilet because they don't want to honor the contract that I they agreed to. Huh. Well, yeah, that's... That's exactly it. Bauman's strategy is outrageous and sounds like something a mob boss would do. A contract should be a contract honored. And Milwaukee World Festival clearly is in the right. Amen. Amen. And and maybe they got a deal. Maybe the city of Milwaukee, you know, back in 2009, you know, when they negotiated the addendums. Okay, maybe they should have asked for more. All right, maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. But there's the deal. You sign that lease with your landlord, and your landlord automatically says, gee, I want you to pay you know, a, a third again as much, and you're three months into the lease. You're going to say, are you nuts? We have this contract. Talk to me when the lease comes up for renewal. Jeff, my question to the city would be, what is the alternative by not having Summerfest in Milwaukee? Look at the macroeconomic effect that the festival has on the city with all the amounts spent by the visitors. Yes, you know, that's the thing. So let's say you get your way. We're going to hold our nose. We're going to, we're going to, this isn't going to happen, but let's talk about the extremes. We're not going to give Summerfest the legal stuff it needs to operate. So Summerfest is going to shut down. We're not going to have Summerfest this year. And we're not going to have it next year because Summerfest, we want them to give us more than the $1.8 million that they're already giving us. How in the world does that make that the city better? Do you seriously think that there's some other operator, for example, that's going to be able to come in and, you know, use those grounds and pay the city substantially more money than that and also, you know, return as much to the community? Good luck with that. But yet that is precisely what is going on. This is this is just some of the garbage that goes on on a daily basis in Milwaukee City Hall, which makes you realize that the city of Milwaukee is always it's always going to be petty. It's always going to be a small town when you have some of these people in elective office. There is so much potential for the city. There is so much potential for this region. And yet it's held in check on so many occasions by some of these petty elected officials who get into office and never get out. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Crew producing the show today and always. Have you ever been on a cruise? You haven't been on a cruise yet. No, I no. haven't. Okay. The um, cruises are, are wonderful. Looking forward to our next Uniworld cruise in September. There is a point, though, when you're when, when the cruise is over, you're ready to get off the ship. Now, like, for example, like what, what happens when we do our river cruises is there, there's a there's a point in time where, okay, it's the last day of the cruise. You're waiting for your transportation to take you to the airport. And typically there's a time where you have to check out of your room. So there's always like a couple hours 
maybe before they're going to take you to the airport, depending on what your flight is. And I can remember, you know, everybody, everybody's kind of, you got your bags, your, well, your, your bags are going to be loaded onto the, the bus, but you're, you're sort of sitting around with your book or your computer or whatever, and you're waiting in the lounge. You just, you just want to go home. I mean, you've loved the cruise. It's great, but you're ready. Okay. Get me on the bus. Get me to the plane. Get me home. That you're just ready for that, and it's just it has nothing to do with how great the cruise is. So I am thinking of this story: seven thousand people now in this little port outside of Rome, trapped on a cruise ship. If you haven't heard this story, this is the deal: it's a it was a week long cruise, and the cruise started in Mallorca, which is in Spain. And it ended up in in the area around Rome, in central Italy. Okay, so what happens is you're on this cruise, six thousand people and a thousand crew members. Well, two nights ago, one of the passengers, who is from Macau, China, comes down with flu-like symptoms that they suspect might be this, you know, latest coronavirus thing. Okay, this is a cruise ship where, you know, you're in close quarters where, you know, Lord knows how many people have been exposed. Okay, so now the the ship is in port. You've got 6,000 people that want to get off. You've got 1,000 crew members, and you've got somebody who might have the coronavirus and who might have infected 6,000 people, worst-case scenario. And, of course, because of the way this is spread, if you let those 6,000 people who might have been infected, if you let them leave the ship and go into communities or get on planes or whatever, you you could have millions of people possibly exposed to this. So uh, what they're doing is they have now quarantined everybody. The passenger is placed in isolation along with her travel companions. So they're they're watching her, and they're trying to determine what type of virus does she have. Does she have the coronavirus, or does she just... Did she eat some bad shellfish or something like that? They're trying to figure this out. But, again, she's from Macau, China, so all these red flags are going off. And if it turns out that she has the coronavirus, Melissa Barkley, passengers and crew could be quarantined for two weeks aboard the ship. I've been on a cruise before, and I loved it, but you're right. (laughs) You're you're right. When it's over, you're you're ready to go. When when it's done, you're like, yeah, I'm ready to get back on land. Two weeks. So it's at this port, and they're not letting anybody off. And and I'm not, I, I mean, they're doing the right thing. I'm just saying, I can't. Imagine being on your vacation and this is trapped the... <laughs> for this is how it ends. You're trapped <laughs> yeah. for an extra now. Now, at least the plumbing is working. They're going to have food and they're going to be bringing stuff in like that. But all you have to do now is just kind of like sit around and wait and hope whether this one person has does she have the coronavirus and are you going to get the coronavirus? Cause so the woman are. or sorry, the, uh, the the person that has coronavirus, they are quarantined. Everyone else is free to kind of go about the ship or I believe so. OK, because yeah, I was going to say that would leave be the ship. they can't leave the ship. But well, at least there's a lot of entertainment on the ship. I, I well, who, who I knows? Know. Yeah, I, no, I don't. Yeah, I don't think they're all quarantined to their state. Yeah, I, or anything. I don't think it's like prison. But um, but so you, you can't leave the ship and you yeah. might be there for another two weeks. <sighs> Call, call your employer. Oh, at WTMJ, no. call Brad Lane, call Steve Wexler. Hey, Brad, Hi, this is Melissa. Um, you know, I'm. Yeah, I can do reports from the ship via <laughs> right, phone. But. Right, but, but we're stuck otherwise. Okay, we're going to be back in just a minute for the news. Let's take a quick break, quick break right before that. This is Jeff Wagner. 
This is Jeff Wagner on WGMJ. During yesterday's show, I, I did something I almost never do, which is I spent almost all of, of the first hour of the program on a single topic. If you're a regular listener, you know we, we tend to move through topics, and in, in any given hour we'll maybe do two or three or four or, or more. It's rare for me to spend an hour, but I did because it was an issue that I, I think it's being miscovered in the local media, and I think it raises this larger story that should scare everyone. It's a story that's getting national attention because there's there's a reporter used to work for NBC. His name is Mike Hixenbaugh, and he, he's out of Texas now, but he's been doing a series of stories about how the, the Child Protection Service and, and hospitals have gone Oh, the, the pendulum has swung. We, we all care about child abuse. And if there's parents that are abusing their kids, obviously you want to get the kids out of the houses and, and you want to get the, the abusers prosecuted. Nobody, nobody disagrees with that. But we, we've gone through the looking glass because more and more you have situations where you, you take, you know, something happens to your kid. Kids don't grow up with bubble wrap. You know, you, you take your kid to the emergency room because he fell down or because there's this bruise or that bruise. And immediately the parents are treated like they are abusers. The assumption is that, hey, you mean your kid was running and he fell down and he, you know, cut his forehead? Well, okay, well, you sure that that was how this happened? Maybe it was happened somewhere else. And the parents automatically become suspects. We took calls for the better part of a half hour of that segment from people around here who had the same sort of stories. You know, we brought it in, and we were treated like we were the, the criminals here. And stories of, of, again, people in the hospital system, pediatric nurses, completely misdiagnosing things, saying, well, th- these are bruises, and they, they're not bruises, they're birthmarks, and they can't tell the difference. And then next thing you know, there's a referral to Child Protective Services, and next thing you know, it, it's completely off to the races. And the, the story, and I have a link up, if you follow me on Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 the the story by Mike Hixenbaugh focuses on something that happened at Children's Hospital in May, May of last year. And this is this, this May date is going to be important for a point I'm going to make. And it was made to me after I did the segment yesterday, because I will tell you, I want to say this because I there is a genuine fear among people at Children's now that there will be a, that there is an ongoing witch hunt and that if they talk about this. They will be subject to discipline, and so there, you know, it's you know, people say we got we want people to know about this, but we don't want to go on the record because you know there is this climate here where we we are afraid that if we speak the truth, well, there's going to be consequences, and we might find ourselves in in situations that we don't want to be in. But but here here's the bottom line. Long story short of the story, there last May, there's a guy who who is a doctor at Children's. He, he's pediatric ER. He's got a one-month-old adopted daughter. They've had her for a month. He and his wife, his wife's also a doctor at the hospital. They also have two other children. The The wife and the two kids, the the other two children, they're at a, she takes them on a medical conference, so she's out of the city. This is last May. I think it's May 8th off the top of my head. They're, the, the dad is at home with the baby. Baby's one month old, has somebody over, a friend of his over. They watch the Bucks game, puts the baby in the crib. 
Dad goes to sleep. Baby goes to sleep. Baby wakes up at 5 o'clock in the morning, starts crying. Dad gets the baby out of the crib. Dad takes the baby back to his bed and, and sleeps. Now, we, we talk a lot about co-sleeping and things like that. And interestingly, of course, in, in Milwaukee County, how many times have we had situations where parents roll over, smother the kid, the kid dies, and then nothing happens to the parents? Right. Well, in this particular case, the dad says he wakes up about an hour later. He had, he was comforting the child who was crying. He says he recognizes he's fallen asleep. He has rolled over, and he noticed that the baby has some discomfort with her arm. And the doc, the dad's a doc. He says immediately, I, I, I rolled over. I think I, 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 I hurt, maybe broke the baby's collarbone because her arm is kind of dangling. Other than that, she's not in any sort of distress, but a little bit of discomfort. He talks to his wife. Calls her up, says, you know, what I think I should do. They say, okay, we're going to go take, take her into the hospital. You work there. Take her into the hospital and look at it. Takes her into the hospital. And there you, you can read in great details about what the nightmare is. But, you know, he says this is what happened. You have some pediatric nurse who looks at the baby and who determines that the baby has all these bruises and the vast majority of these marks that she identifies with as bruises are, are birthmarks. They, they can't apparently tell the difference. They end up calling Child Protective Services. They have somebody who says, well, it, it couldn't have happened like that. Now, a lot of the other physicians say, of course it, it could have happened like that. It's perfectly consistent. Next thing you know, you've got the district attorney's office that's involved. You've got Child Protective Services that's involved. The the doctor, they they. Child Protective Services comes in, takes away the baby, and you have this whole system that is now kicked into place. Let me let me read you a portion of the story that was originally reported on by by again uh, Hicksonbaugh. Here's what he writes. Cox, that's the doctor, Cox's ordeal has opened a rift to Children's Hospital, where some treating physicians say they are so alarmed by what's happened to him that they now hesitate to refer injured children for evaluations by child abuse pediatricians. This is a special subset of doctors that work very, very closely, some would argue perhaps too closely, with the DA's offices and with Child Protective Services, and arguably find abuse in lots and lots of cases. Anyhow, um, some treating physicians say they are alarmed by what's happened to him, and they now hesitate to refer injured children for evaluations by child abuse pediatricians, fearing that an abuse specialist might jump to the wrong conclusion and needlessly report parents to Child Protective Services. A dozen members of the hospital's medical staff spoke to a reporter on the condition of anonymity, worried that they would be punished for discussing their concerns publicly. And I will tell you, I'm hearing from people who feel exactly the same way. Several emergency room doctors described a, quote, out of control, end quote, child abuse team that is too quick to report minor injuries to authorities and is too closely aligned with state child welfare investigations. Three of the doctors recalled being pressured by child abuse pediatricians to alter medical records, removing passages where they had initially reported having little or no concerns about abuse, though there's no evidence that that happened in Cox's case. Essentially, they've asked us to edit medical records to help state prosecute parents when doctors said it's completely inappropriate five doctors told a reporter that they're even afraid to bring their own children to the hospital to their hospital after accidental injuries fearing that a misdiagnosis or miscommunication might lead child protective services to break their family apart 
This is a disease in our hospital, one physician said. The way John's case has been mishandled has opened all of our eyes to how big the problem is. When we come back, questions I have for the district attorney's office. Stick around. Welcome back to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. Okay, so that's kind of the the background of this. Now, part of the scene, in my mind, switches to the Milwaukee County District Attorney's Office. Now, we we all remember the horrors of the John Chisholm failed prosecution into the John Doe investigations. Remember that a few years ago, where John Chisholm, in my opinion, for political motives, together with a number of his staff aides, decided that they were going to launch this investigation of of activities conducted by members of the Scott Walker administration or Republican donors or people associated with the Republican Party. And and you had this several-year witch hunt. You had the early morning raids to take, you know, information and things like that. It was a disgraceful period in Wisconsin legal history, particularly the actions of the district attorney's office. And interestingly, nobody was held accountable for, at the end of the day, nobody was held accountable for all the money that was spent on that investigation that should have never been started in the first place and ended up going nowhere. All right. So if you might, if you haven't figured this out yet, I'm I'm hearing from from people about this. Uh, People close to the case, um, but not necessarily directly involved in it. And let me say this. Interestingly enough, after this started to become public, the district attorney handling this case ran to the court and asked for a gag order preventing the parties from talking about this case. So, and I want to be real clear here, none of the information I'm getting is from anybody that would be subject to that gag order, at least to the best of my knowledge. So, you know, it's kind of like, why why would the judge issue a gag order, and, and why are you asking for this? And I understand the justification is, well, this involves, you know, a child. But but that the, the barn, has, the door has been opened, and the horses are out. This this case is out there. It's getting national attention. And, and yet the district attorney is apparently trying to prevent parties from talking more about this, which I think is an interesting question. Why would you be doing that? Who are you trying to protect? Less, I think, the child and more a system that might be out of control, and maybe even the district attorney's office itself, which I think has some explaining to do. Let me just share with you I mean, some of the questions that some of the people familiar with this case are asking. Now, by the way, this has been going on. This happened in May of last year, May of last year. So it's not like a situation where, oh, my God, we found this doctor that we think has broken his you know, adoptive child's collarbone. We've got to do something. We've got to stop him from treating patients. We're afraid that he's dangerous, etc. We We've got to act. Right, this it started last May, May eighth. We are now here almost till February, and they didn't get around to issuing charges until last week, which obviously raises the question what's going on? Why would you have this long delay and why now? So I mean I, I think here's some questions that maybe somebody should should ask the district attorney. Um what was their interaction with the parties? Because the information I have is that the district attorney's office had initially said that there there wasn't going to be any sort of of criminal charges, and that would appear to me to be consistent 
with the fact that you wait eight months to bring charges in a case like this. I mean, if you've got a child abuse case and you think somebody's really hurt their child, um, you know, don't don't you want to act right away to do that? All right. Here's another thing. It is my understanding that there was a civil lawsuit being planned that would be filed against say, the hospital and, say, the people who made the decision at the hospital and maybe Child Protective Service services. My question is, are the criminal charges that are brought against this doctor in any way, shape, or form, are these intended to try to get leverage over the doctor for the civil suit that the doctor may have? And if that is the case, and I just say if that is the case, I think – it would be one of the grossest abuses of prosecutive power, prosecutive, prosecutive power that you could ever imagine. And obviously the truth at some point in time will come out, but I think there are questions that we should be asking the prosecutors. Why is there this delay? Was, you know, were there communications early on indicating that there weren't going to be criminal charges in this case? Has the fact that you've now changed your mind, is there any relation to the fact that there might be, I don't know, civil exposure or concern about civil exposure over this whole thing? And, and how does this all play in? I'm just going to tell you, this whole thing stinks. It, it absolutely stinks. And when I hear doctors saying that now they don't trust the system to the point that they're not sure that they would bring their own kids into the hospital for evaluation. And, and that that's a pretty darn scary thing. And I know Children's Hospital is saying, well, you know, we, we stand by our procedures, but we're going to be transparent. Well, okay, you, you better start right away. You better start right away with being transparent because there's a lot of doctors at Children's Hospital, in my opinion, It sounds like they have lost complete and total confidence in the system that Children's has set up. And this idea that you have a couple of these child abuse specialists who can magically look at things and say, oh, well, we found two bruises, and so we believe that that's got to be evidence of child abuse, you know, moving forward. It's kind of a scary sort of star chamber thing that's going on there. I think we are only at the tip of the iceberg now. And I understand the local media is uncomfortable with this story because we, we all love Children's Hospital. They do great work. All right? that, nobody's arguing about that. They, they, do, they do great work. We also should all be appalled at anybody who would hurt a child. You know, you don't want to stand up on the side of child abusers. Nobody wants to do that. But if we are creating a star chamber in this community where people bring their children in and are automatically suspects of abuse to the point that you're going to have Child Protective Services working with this small group of physicians who claims that, you know, despite all sorts of other evidence to the contrary, they know what had to have gone on. It's a bad, bad situation. And then if you've got a district attorney or a district attorney's office that is wading into this and engaging in, well, arguably questionable behavior. And like I say, maybe there's all sorts of justifications and legitimate justifications for the eight-month delay, uh, the going back and forth between the attorneys. I, I don't know. Maybe the information that I'm being told about the interaction with the DA's office isn't going to turn out to be correct. But you, you would like to have the district attorney or the, pro, the deputy district attorney who made these decisions. be interesting to get him under oath and ask him some of the questions about his charging decision on this case as well. Just telling you, you haven't heard the end of this. And 
Children's, which is a great institution, they got to get on top of this. They, they, they do. There's no question about it because right now they've got a huge, huge credibility problem, not necessarily with the general public, but certainly with a lot of the doctors that work on their staff in this area. This is Jeff Wagner. Live from the Annex Wealth Management Studios at Historic Radio City, this is the Jeff Wagner Show. And now, WTMJ's Jeff Wagner. So, Melissa, you should solicit, like, over the Internet, should we, should we like, send out a tweet about a statue and ask what, what, what listeners think that that statue is? Yeah, I think that's a good idea because, yeah, you pointed out something I didn't really realize. Uh, uh, but, we'll, yeah. we'll pull back the curtain yeah, yeah, here yeah. for a minute. I mean, every year around Christmas time, the, the folks at Goodwill, they come over, and one of the things they do is they have, like, like white elephant gifts. Yeah, I and love they, them. And, mm-hmm. and they come over, and, and these, are, these are, like, little silly sort of things that you can get for, like, less than a dollar or and something like that. And you're always like wondering, that. oh, what's in the bag? Right, right oh. exactly. And, they, yeah. and it's very nice. Well, well <laughs> one that was given this yeah. year... And it's it's now it's it's been in our studio for the last like six weeks. It's like it's, a facet in the corner of our studio. It is, and yeah. it, it's a it's a statue, a relatively decent sized yeah. statue, and it's it's two elephants, two white elephants. Literally, it's yeah. a white statue, two white elephants, and I, I think conventionally most people look at it and it looks like the elephants are fighting yeah that's what i originally thought they're fighting i would glance it, over at it when i come in the studio uh, another interpretation could be that they are preparing to make love <laughs> that that could be as well and i i and then you know i glanced at it again and i go my brow furrowed and i go you did, you said, oh i never thought of it and only because now there's a bottle of empty wine next we to have it a bottle so. of empty wine and you do this yeah. there's a whole scenario going I, I, on in the corner right I, this this must be these weekend guys. there's this bottle of empty wine and there's this statue of these elephants and i, I admit, yeah. it is a distraction for me because i look over and and I, I presume, like I say, they were fighting, but there's other interpretation no, could be there as well. For sure, I wonder if you should see what our audience thinks. Well, like put it, put it out on Twitter. On Twitter, I mean, <laughs> <Right>. just <laughs> well, we'll, we'll 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 think about that. Actually, we'll 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 think about maybe yeah. we can get maybe we can get uh, my producer Gru to pose with that, and that can be like the question: what oh, What no. is this statue? And like that look <laughs> I just got like, there. Uh, no. What is this statue all about here? And 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 why why is it here? But yeah. it's that's just kind that's of pull, pulling back the curtain. Yeah, mm. it just kind of shows how my mind works. Okay, hey, I want to I, I do want I want to save you and I want to save people some money. You were um, you were you were probably too young. You weren't doing radio at the um, at the at the at the turn of the of the the century. You I was you, actually. Oh, so okay. So re, do you remember like all the the big Y two K stuff sure. and mm-hmm. all that? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. And, and and here at TMJ, it was. It was a huge, huge topic in the months leading up to that because w- without going too far into the weeds, the, the, ar- the argument was that all these computer systems that we had, um, they weren't going to be able to take the change from uh, 1999 to 2000. That, that was it. It was the year 2K thing. And by switching over to 2000, I, I I knew the details of this at the time, but the concern was none of these computers would work. Everything Maybe the would algorithms malfun- would right. not be right. Everything would malfunction. You'd have, you know, a, a, all the power companies. This would fail. You know, flight control things would fail. It would be the mm-hmm. end of the world. And there was this whole cottage industry that had developed 
selling essentially selling people survivalist stuff. Mm-hmm. The idea would be okay once this happens. You know, your water plant, you're, you're not going to be able to get water. Tap water is going to stop running because the computers that run this aren't going to work. The electricity isn't going to work. And so there were people that were out there, I mean, essentially selling survivalist kits here, mm-hmm. you know, food that you can live on for a month, all this stuff. You, you remember all that? I right? do. I do. I mean, when we were, I can remember sitting in this exact spot. And the big concern was, you know, what, what's going to happen? And, of course, I was one of these guys that was all along going, Nothing's going to happen. This mm-hmm. is going to be absolutely fine. You and, didn't have a, a bunker full of vegetable, canned vegetables and stuff? Well, not for Y2K. Oh. You know? <laughs> not just for the regular stuff, because you never yeah, know. Right. But, um, but, you know, and I would get all these hostile emails, basically and generally from people who were the ones who were trying to sell you the bottled water sure. and the freeze-dried food and all that. Time. How dare you not say this? is mm-hmm. You're going to be really sorry when the planes start falling out of the sky. Well, I mean, I can remember being on the air, and the first tip that there was going to be nothing to this was... When it started turning, I mean, I, I can remember being on the air on New Year's Eve, and of course, you know, you, you'd have we're in different time zones, so like in Asia and stuff, or Australia, Australia, right? They they hit they hit midnight, and, and nothing and happens, were okay. yeah. and things. But you know, even that people say, "Oh, this is going to be the end of the world." But I I can remember that there were people who panicked and were rushing out and were buying. All this this stuff, you know, because mm-hmm. again, they're, they're, the, we're not going to be able to get water or anything like that. Yeah, there is a version of that going on on right now, and you know what? There's a run on. It's the masks. They, they oh can't, yes, I, the coronavirus masks. Right. The yeah. the there is apparently hoarding that is going on right now. Stores are selling out of masks. Amazon, if you go to order this, at least in some areas, they're saying there's like a three to four week backlog on ordering these masks, you know, for people. No, I know. And and, and I guess I wanted to just, Hmm. Melissa, if you were thinking about doing that, the the short answer is don't. First of all, health officials say... They don't really work right, that right, well anyway. Well, right. First, they, yeah. they say there's you, right. Wash your hands. I mean, yes. it's the same advice yes. that you get for flu. Wash your hands. Secondly, most of the masks that people buy, those cheap kind of paper masks that you buy in a drugstore and stuff, they're they're not going to work. I mean, there's there's special types of masks that surgical nurses and doctors wear that are generally they're fitted, um, but but generally the paper masks. Don't fit that well. So if there's any sort of gaps, gaps, stuff can get in. If you, I don't know, pull back the mask to scratch your nose or to talk on the cell phone or whatever, you defeat the whole purpose. But but again, it's this kind of panic that's out there. People doing this. You know, it's interesting because I was in Trader Joe's the other day walking around the grocery store and I saw someone with a mask. And I thought, huh. Are people now buying? Obviously, people are now buying well, these masks and using them for right. I, I don't. I don't. I don't have the story localized, but I, I have the national story. Sure. Yeah. And the national story is talking about how there are, there are, there are pharmacies and stuff all over the country that have sold out on this. The uh, CDC is apparently reaching out to manufacturers, particularly the manufacturers that make the stuff that you use in the hospitals, Mm -hmm. and and saying, you know, we need you to consider, like, increasing production and all because of these demands. But, but again, they also say, for average, for for you and me, you want to wash your hands. Right. And generally speaking, the, the, the type of mask that you would buy at the pharmacy is... 
it, it might make you feel better, <clears throat> and maybe it's going to give you a little bit of added mm-hmm. stuff, but... That's not really going to do you too much good. Right. So, I mean, if you're if you're out there, like my producer grew, and you're thinking, I, I got to buy like a, a carton of these. I want, I, I want five cartons of these. I want to stack them up in the closet, and I want to put them next to my statue of the elephants. I'm I'm gonna I, I'm gonna have it all there, so I'm protected. You you don't need to you don't Brew, need to bother. It's you, not. He could be entrepreneurial and just buy a whole bunch of boxes and then sell them for. X amount. Well, you know, there's probably some <laughs> I of that. Someone doing I'm sure that. there's probably uh, some of that going on as, as these fears spread. And I'm, I, I'm not underplaying that this coronavirus. And I mean, I, I lived through the SARS thing and the MERS thing and all that. And and, and obviously, it, it's a matter of concern, particularly if you've got a compromised immune system. For, for most people, it sounds like it, it's a bad cold, just like. You know, yeah, they're saying for infants or, like you said, people that have, you know, older immune, people, older people. Problems. Sure, mm-hmm. a- absolutely. You know, but I mean, th- and the, the number to keep it in perspective in the U.S., they estimate that about 35,000 people a year die because of the flu. Now, it, it's not it, it's not the flu necessarily, but it's you've got the compromised immune system. You've got all sorts of other health problems and you, you get the flu on top of it and it leads to pneumonia and all that type of right. stuff. Right. There's a lot of other stuff that goes into it. It's not just right. one thing. Yep. OK, so. Uh, again, um, it, it, this is the new Y2K thing. It, it's the masks. And my, my advice is, at least at this point in time, I'd say save your money. I understand better safe than sorry, but I'd say save your money. Melissa and I are going to do that. When we come back, a segment I call Wipeout. Stick around. Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. <laughs> my groove on back here got some chair dancing going on all right that's wipeouts before before we get to wipeout one quick uh, follow-up on what melissa and i were just talking about I have a text from somebody jeff i use those masks for doing drywall as part of my business i just checked the same package of masks the paper masks i normally buy for twenty dollars they're now going for seventy five dollars that's, that just tells you what is going on, the fear that's out there. And, and most of those masks, they might be fine for drywall, but they're not going to pre- prevent you from getting sick. Okay, wipe out. Headline. In today's Los Angeles Times, Sanders rise, fueling internal fight as some Democrats fear a November Wipeout. All right, here here is the, the story. We, there's a number of people uh, among many many people. Their prime concern is beating Donald Trump. The argument is we got to get rid of Donald Trump. He's got to be be gone. All right, so that's that's the goal. Now there's people who are running who are centrist. There's people who are running who are hard left. Bernie Lander, Bernie Landers, Bernie Sanders is about as hard left as you can get. He is a Democrat socialist. He is proud of this. He's going to be, if on Inauguration Day in 2021, he will be 80 years old. So he would be the oldest person ever elected president if he were elected. The two people who are kind of a, had emerged from the crowd on the far left are Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It is still early in the process. 
but Elizabeth Warren is faltering and Bernie is picking up momentum. The the leftist part of the Democrat Party is apparently, at least at this point, and I understand it's early, I understand there hasn't been a caucus, there hasn't been a vote cast, but by all objective standards, polls, fundraising, etc., the, the the left, the far left wing of the party is coalescing around Bernie Sanders. Now that that could change, so it's it's not it's not a given, but he's the guy that has all the momentum, and it, it's looking more and more like he's going to be the guy that at least emerges as the candidate of the left. Doesn't mean he's going to get the nomination. There, there's other more moderate Democrats, uh, whether it's Joe Biden or whether it's a Michael Bloomberg or an Amy Klobuchar or a Pete Buttigieg. But but Bernie, it is appearing more and more likely that he is going to be the standard bearer for the far left. And a lot of people who want very badly to beat President Trump are terrified of this because they don't believe that Bernie Sanders, despite the fact that, that he's incredibly popular among, you know, certain groups of people, you know, and, th- and that he is the, he, like I say, he's this now 78, would be 80 at the time of inauguration. That he, he's the darling of, of that, that wing of the party. But there's a lot of people who look at this and say, He's just too far out there. America in 2020 is not ready to go as far out there as Bernie is. There's a story out there today about a number of the executive orders that that Bernie Sanders is, is preparing. And apparently the attitude is, well, we know a lot of the stuff that Bernie wants to do. We couldn't get through Congress even if the Democrats should somehow take control of the House of Rep- maintain control of the House of Representatives and take control of the Senate, we, we know that that the Demo- even the Democrat Party is not going to go as far on a lot of these things. So Bernie's already coming up with okay, these are executive orders that we're going to issue to try to do all this stuff that we're probably not going to be able to do legislatively to move the party further, further left. And, and move it towards what his vision of society is. Our number, 855-616-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is America ready for Bernie Sanders? And I, I'm going to just, I'm going to say this right now. I think if Dem, and I, I've been saying repeatedly, if people ask me to predict the election next November, I can't because I don't know who Donald Trump's opponent is going to be. I have said before, I think if the Democrats nominate a center left candidate, a Michael Bloomberg, a Joe Biden, an Amy Klobuchar, a Pete Buttigieg, I, that's, I think Trump's going to have problems winning. Because I think that there's a lot of people, independents, middle-of-the-road type of people, who have, for whatever reason, been put off by President Trump's various antics and whatever, and would look for an option. But a lot of those people aren't going to view somebody who wants to completely and totally remake America as that option. And just like Nixon won a landslide re-election over George McGovern in 1972 because McGovern was way out there and he, he took a lot of Republicans with him on his coattails, I think it is very, very likely that the same thing would happen in 2020 if Bernie Sanders were the nominee. All right, 855-616-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is Bernie Sanders, who has very, very deep support, 
Can he get elected president? Is the country ready for a socialist president? My answer is some parts of the country may be, but I don't see that as a winning strategy. And I concede that I think this is an election that is out there to be won for the Democrats. I think you screw it up. They screw it up. Democrats screw it up if you nominate a far, far left-wing candidate. And, and yeah, I understand why Democrats, in the headline in the L.A. Times, fear a November wipeout as Bernie Sanders starts to rise. What do you think? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. You're listening to Jeff Wagner on WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Let's talk to Rick. Rick, you're first. Good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. I uh, am independent, but I think Bernie's way too far left for me. I'm hoping Biden, maybe he can get a gal to pick for a vice president. I think that would be a strong suit there, and that would take Trump out of the picture. But no, well, Bernie's way too far left. I, you know, I mean, th- thanks for call. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I've said this before, and this is the way I handicap the race. If if it is somebody, I don't think America is ready to completely and totally upend our economic system. I don't think we're willing to, I mean, go the, the socialist route. I understand he talks about it being a Democrat socialist, but I don't think we're ready to do that. If the candidate is a more mainstream center-left candidate, then the election becomes uh, about President Trump and do people like President Trump and etc. If you, you go with a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren, but Bernie seems to be peaking at the moment, then the question is, it's, it's not about President Trump. It's about, do you agree with Bernie Sanders' vision of America? And I just don't think, I don't think we're there yet. Mike in West Bend. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hey, Jeff. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking the call. Thanks for calling. Hey, I, uh, you know, the, I think that the Bernie Sanders represents essentially a third party in this election, and I don't believe a third party on the extreme left or right is the right third party to go after. Um, I believe a central, uh, moderate third party candidate is more likely to garner support and to bring the nation together than divide it further than it is. Yeah, and, and there's no question Bernie Sanders would be divisive, and I understand, you know, people consider, you know, President Trump to be divisive as well. And thanks for calling. Yeah, I mean, right, right, Bernie, just like Donald Trump is not a traditional Republican, and take that from somebody who grew up around Republican politics. Now, Bernie Sanders is not a traditional Democrat in any sense of the term. Now, the, the idea, I mean, I appreciate it. 2016, you know, Trump upset the establishment apple cart and, and Trump ended up winning. So the argument would be, hey, if Trump could win in 2016, you know, can't Bernie Sanders do the same in 2020? And and I guess maybe it, it's possible, but it's a much different election if he's the nominee. And I'm not at all convinced that he won't be the nominee. I, I mean, if you look, again, you have a certain segment of Democrat voters that are the hard left voters, just like you have a certain percentage of the Republican voters that are hard right, and they appear to be coalescing around Bernie Sanders as opposed to Elizabeth Warren. So my guess is the Warren voters, they're going to end up going to Bernie Sanders, and, and that that's formidable. Then the question becomes who emerges as the center. I don't think it's out of the question at all that, that Bernie Sanders could be the nominee. I also don't think... 
He's not going anywhere. I mean, he feels that he got Rogered out of the nomination in 2016 by the Democratic Party and by Hillary Clinton, and, and he's not going to go quietly into the good night. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a contested Democrat convention here in Milwaukee. How interesting will that be? This is Jeff Wagner.